Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. John 13, verse 34 and 35. I'm going to read from verse 31 and I'll, yeah, let me just read from verse 31. And this, the context of this verse was Jesus was meeting his disciples for one of the final few times before he was going to take the cross. And he gives a charge to the disciples and he speaks to the disciples uh, for the final few times. And this chapter, from John 13 all the way to John 17 is this exchange between Jesus and the disciples and this is in John 13 31 so when he was gone referring to Judas Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him once my children I will be with you only a little longer you will look at me you will look for me and just as I told the Jews so I tell you now where I am going you cannot come Verse 34, a new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, it's very interesting about the church in the early days. Now, Jesus gives his charge to the disciples. We know the story. Jesus takes the cross, was crucified. Three days later, was resurrected, spent time with the disciples for 40 days and was transcended into heaven. And the early church was birthed, right? And this is the story of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the episodes of the early church being birthed, right? We know uh, this story is familiar to some of us. And it's very interesting because in those days, there were these people called the apologists. The apologists were people... Um, in, in the essence, the word apologist means the defenders of the faith. And these were the early theologians and early historians of the church, and they would write about these Christians. Many of these early theologists or early apologists were Romans, and they wrote to the Roman Empire about the, Christian, the Christians and their behavior and their way of life. It's very interesting. And so some of the quotes I, I dug up by these apologists, and I will read out to some of you, and this was to depict the Christians. There's this man by the name of Athenagoras in AD 177 wrote this, Among us you will find uneducated persons, craftsmen, old women, who if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of its truth. They do not rehearse speeches but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to the law. They give those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. Roman man who wrote this in AD 177. Another apologist wrote this. His name is Justin Martyr in AD 150. He says, We who formerly used magical arts dedicate ourselves to the good and begotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and share with everyone in need. Another man by the name of Tertullian in AD 200 said this, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are even ready to die for one another. 
So these were the early theologists that wrote about the Christians and they said this about the believers, people who would give of themselves to one another. They wrote of the believers of people who are, who are willing to die for one another. It's interesting what love looked like in the church then, 2,000 years ago. That even to the point of persecution and death, they were willing to love and to give even to the point of death. Jesus said, to use himself as an example. The Bible says in John 13, and we read it in 31, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And the question is, how did Jesus love us? Now, the, the, the point is this, and when he said this in John 31, it was not a new commandment. The idea of loving one another was mentioned in Deuteronomy, and the Bible it says to love your neighbors yourself. It's not a new theology. It's not a new theory to love one another. But the difference between then and now was Jesus came and he says, a new commandment I give you. And a new commandment is that your standard will now be the standard I'm showing to you. And that is the standard that Jesus encourages us and calls us to, to love one another. So what does it look like for you and I? To love one another. The newness of Jesus' command is the new standard that he gives, that he loves us. Jesus' sacrificial love in going to the cross is this new standard to love one another. So, before we talk about loving one another, let's ask the question of, how did Jesus love? Right? So I have a couple of points today about how Jesus loved. And the first point that I have is this. Jesus' love is costly. Jesus' love is costly. Now in verse 31, in John 13, we read, that he gone out and Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and will glorify him immediately. And he was talking about the cross and Jesus taking the cross a few days later. In 1 John 3.16, we read that by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. This is the extent of Jesus' love that he took the cross I just want you to imagine this for a minute. This is Jesus we're talking about. If you read the Bible about God, about Jesus, the Bible says that even the heavens cannot contain the glory of Jesus. This is Jesus. Just imagine this for a minute, right? This is Jesus sitting on a throne. The angels are worshipping Him. They're crying out, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is Jesus in His splendor, sits on the throne, decides that He will take the place of a human being. Like, this is like living a life of luxury and says, I'm going to give that all up to be a cockroach. Like, I mean, I mean and, and that does not even compare to even what heaven looks like. That, that does not even compare to the glory that Jesus is living in and the eternal beauty that, he's, that revolves around him and he decides to take up a human form not only does he decide to take up the form of a flesh, of a human being, he comes in and he says, I will be a servant and I will serve the least of these. And not only does he do that, he decides to put himself in a position of dying on the cross, the most humiliating way of death in those days. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. I mean, there's this idea of what Jesus went through. For the joy set before him, and what is this joy that he was talking about that allowed 
or gave Jesus the impetus to take the cross. Now, I just want you to imagine this for a minute. Jesus was on the cross and he was hanging and we often see pictures with him with a loincloth around him. But in actual fact, Jesus was totally naked taking the cross. Totally naked. Anybody wants to be an example? Jason, would you like to be? <laughs> just, just kidding. But just imagine that for a minute. That is the extent of the love that Jesus, and it cost him something. It really cost Jesus something. And this is the standard of love God is calling us to, to sacrifice to a love that cost us something. This is, the, this is perhaps, I, I came across a quote uh, by this man called Erwin McManus, and he says this, this is perhaps why so many of us who know love fear love. We know that love is not the absence of pain. If anything, love is the promise of pain. No one has loved more deeply than God. Has anyone ever been more betrayed? God would not know suffering if he did not know love. But because he is love, he chose to suffer on our behalf. Without love, there is no glory in suffering. I mean, I, I pulled out another six, seven verses of what Jesus did. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Uh, Hebrews 12.2, I mean, we quote, and there's so many different verses about what Christ did on the cross. Then I couldn't pull out a hundred more verses about what Jesus died on the cross. But friends, at the end of the day, Jesus' love as seen at the cross was costly. And this theme was repeated over and over across the Bible. It cost him something. And that's the way Jesus loves. Now, there's this line I, I, I wrote in earlier. And the main idea of my message today is a fairly simple to, to say, very simple to state, but almost impossible or impossible to live out consistently apart from the po power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying all this, but I know that this is an impossible standard that Jesus says, but it's made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Point number two, Jesus' love is conspicuous. Some people ask me, wow, conspicuous, such a chim word. My conclusion is there's no C word that starts, uh, there's no word that starts with C that um, exemplifies my point entirely. I wanted to say that Jesus' love is visible and clear and obvious, but none of them starts with the letter C. So conspicuous is the word I picked. So, you know, you must, every sermon must start with three C's. It becomes more anointed that way. Jesus' love, Jesus' love is conspicuous. John 13, 35, it says this, By this, all men, everybody say all men. All men. all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In John 13, 35. 1 John 4, 12 says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. See, Jesus wasn't talking about just having nice thoughts about loving one another. Imagine if one day uh, we read the scriptures and we read that, you know, Jesus felt like he loved the people and he imagined it in the throne room of heaven and does not display his love for all to see upon the cross. If let's say I use Mel as an example, and you know what, Mel, your birthday is coming up. I just, I imagine a great present for you, but I don't actually buy it for her. Think about it, right? I would sleep on the couch. Uh. By the way, to all married men or those who are going to get married, trick is buy a comfortable couch. 
Okay? Buy a comfortable couch. Works. So that you can watch football in it. Excuse me, what are you all thinking about? Yeah. Can host friends, right? See, love stems from the heart, but it is seen in outward actions. It is a sort of love that stands out conspicuously in, the, in this self-centered world. People should see the way that Christians love one another and say they must be followers of Jesus. I was in uh, Reservist a few weeks ago. For those who don't know what Reservist is, um, every year, um, national, those who serve the army would have to go back every year for two weeks of training. And so I was called back about a month ago for reservist training. And this was my last reservist that I need to serve as a national serviceman. Last ever. And so I, had, I walked into national service thinking, you know what, this is my last time. I'm just going to Chowking and just get my two weeks over and done with. And I will take my watch. Chowking, by the way, for those who are, does not understand the word Chowking, it means to... Slack. Oh, sorry. To lay up one corner, to slack. To skive, right? Yeah, skive is a great word. So my, my, my goal for this in-camp was to chow king for two weeks, get it done and over with, get my watch, get my letter, and it's done. Two weeks of NS is over. But I went into the reservist and I felt that God says, hey, you know what? This is your last opportunity to reveal Christ to the people that you're meeting. I was like, okay, God. So I, I went into reservist and... Um, context is this um, I was from a previous unit and they finished their reservists before I did so I owed the government uh, one or two more and this was the last one I owed the government one more and so I went and I stepped into a new unit the people were I, weren't fami- I wasn't familiar with most of them I only met them once prior and so I was like okay it's easy for me to just hide in one corner because they don't know who I am they're not familiar with who I am but I decided since God said revealed Christ, I was very active and asking people, what help do you need? Can I do anything? And so they gave me four appointments in this uh, reservist in-camp training, none of the four of which I was trained for. Okay, so I was given four key appointments, and they're really key appointments. Uh, I was involved in handling rations. I was involved in handling a, a couple of stores. I was involved in um, collecting the ammo. So I had to go to the ammo dump and collect ammo. One, two, three. What's the fourth one? That food restoration. Okay, actually three. But I did two stores, so that's like, you know. So I was doing multiple roles. And I did it whatever to my best ability, with, except for the fact that I didn't know how to do any of the three. Uh, you know? So I just got around and managed to do what I did. And lo and behold, at the end of the reserve base, they sent me a letter and I was given this exemplary soldier of in-camp training, and it says that you're, um, you have been an exam- example to the men in your unit, and you've been a great soldier, inspiring, and etc. I said, wow, this is great. But here I was in reservist, and it's very interesting because I was meeting some people for the first time, and there were different people in, within the bunk, and we were just talking. Inside in my bunk was a person who is in a full-time position in the church. And there was another person who was a Christian, which I eventually found out. But f- you step into this room, and this, one of them was using vulgarities for his verb, adjective, and his, and his punctuation. <laughs> right? This guy was just going left, right, center. And so we were just talking, and then he asked me, so what do I do? And I talked about how I was working at a charity. And he asked me, what did I used to do previously? And I said, oh, I used to work full-time in a church. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he stunned. Oh, this is the guy that 
use vulgarities left, right, center, right? And then the next question is, oh, will you be going to Kingdom Invasion in two months? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I looked at him and I, okay. Maybe, I won't tell you which church is from, of course, but. <laughs> but it's very interesting because people around the bunk started asking me about questions and they didn't hear that I was a Christian and they, they were outside, you know, the conversation and they found out, uh, they didn't find out I was a Christian, but they started talking about what I did and they said it was really f- fulfilling and inspiring and they started asking me questions about life and what gives you the impetus or gives you the drive to do good and to, you know, help. Um, you know, and all these different things. And I was just sharing my life with them. And when they found out I was a Christian, this is the first thing most of them say, oh, no wonder you're a Christian. Of course you are like that. You know? Um, but they said that it was so obvious that they, uh, yeah, I suspect you are a Christian, uh, you know? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't even know what that means. And so, two weeks of, of in-camp happened, and because I was involved in, in handling rations and handling food, um, I would go to the, the cookhouse every day and take rations from the people involved in the cookhouse and they are all contract staff by this company called SFI. Right? So they're all contract staff. Most of them are in their 50s and all aunties. Right? And I would go to the cookhouse every day and I would get the food, breakfast, lunch and dinner and I would speak to, the, to them every day. And for some reason, they thought I was a very nice boy. Like, you know, oh, you're so cute, this boy, you know. And <laughs> talk to them, always very nice, very polite. You know, and it's, it's actually quite telling because in an army culture, the way everyone speaks to one another, it's, it's either very rude or just a command. But I'm like, oh, auntie, is it okay if I take the packets now? Or would you like to come later? You know, I was just really very nice to them. And there's a particular um, auntie who was in this group. Now, all of them were a particular race except for one. One person who was a different race from everybody. And it was obvious that she was by herself. It was obvious that nobody talked to her. It was obvious that um, she was doing all the, the, the work and everybody else was just like, you know, in their own clique, except for this particular lady. And I made it a point that I would always go to this lady and talk to her. Made it a point just because she was always left out. And every day I would talk to her and I'd ask her, oh, how are you doing? You know, how's your day? And we started talking every day until it came to the final day. And she said, I was eating by myself, my lunch. And she sat down in front of me. I was like, okay, this is going to be awkward, but okay, never mind. And so I had a conversation with her and asked her about how she's doing and asked her about her job. I asked her, why is she doing this? And she shared her 20 years of life with me. And she talked about how she used to be an army regular and how she left army reg- being an army regular and now she's doing this, but she doesn't like the culture. You know, she feels very left out, etc., etc. And we started talking. And then she came to a point when she says, she lost her husband three years ago and how much she hates God. And I didn't even bring up the fact that I was a Christian. I was like, oh, like, why do you hate God if that's the case? Now, she was a Hindu and she said her husband is a staunch Catholic. And she, she shared about how her husband is such a good man and he was very caring, he was very nice and he had to die. Why did God have to take away a good man when there's so many evil men and she started crying. And now, this is lunchtime in army. Oh, thousands of men. Thousands of men were around and she was crying in front of me. And I started weeping as well. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, oh no, I cannot do this. Uh, I was like, listening to this sob story. And I just started sharing life. And I just said, hey, you know, and I started encouraging her, shared about my experience of losing my dad. 
And I just started talking and asked her whether she had children and she started to talk about children and, you know, good conversation. And she looked at me and says, are you a Christian? I'm like, who, why ask such a random question? And I said, yes, I am. And she says, it's so obvious you're a Christian. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but I said, can I pray for you? And I, I prayed for her and she was weeping. And then this random colonel walked by and wanted to like, find out, figure out what's going on. He looked and, you know, I was, I was putting a hand on the shoulder. We're both like, I was tearing, she was crying. <laughs> colonel came over and then he, he like, I've never seen a colonel so awkward in my life. <laughs> he looked and he walked away. What does it mean for our love to be conspicuous? What does it mean for you and I to reveal the love of Christ wherever we go? What does it mean? It's sad though that the church has been known for its fighting and divisions over petty issues more than its love. Paul wrote in Galatians, he says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3.11, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. The church is the family of God and it is conspicuous. It must reveal Christ. I can imagine the 12 disciples for a minute, right? There are 12 disciples and there is this guy called Simon the Zealot. Now, if you, I watched Ben-Hur recently, the newest edition of Ben-Hur, and they depict this character called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots historically were people who wanted to throw the Roman Empire and would do whatever it takes to overthrow them, whether through violence or more violence. These were the Zealots. And they were the people that were known to kill tax collectors because the tax collectors were the lowest scumbags on earth in the mind of the Zealots. But Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, together with the twelve. And he looks at the two of them and says, Okay, you know what? Two of you love one another as I have loved you. And can you imagine these twelve walking into village, walking the town, and here is a zealot, and here is a tax collector serving together, loving each other, and revealing Christ together, just the two of them. We are all from different backgrounds, different experiences, and we are called to love one another. You know, Jesus in John chapter 13 washes the feet of the disciples and another familiar story. The Bible says in John chapter 13 that all authority and all power was already entrusted to Jesus. He knew all things. This was the pinnacle of the authority of Jesus on earth. He knew all things. And the first act he does is to wash the feet of of the disciples and he serves them and he reveals his humility, he reveals his love to the 12 disciples, even to the one that was going to betray him, Judas Iscariot. In Luke's account of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, the Bible says that the disciples were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Can you imagine that scene here is Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and the disciples were arguing about who is greater. John would probably say, I'm the one that is the most loved, right? This is, I'm beloved John. Peter would tell him, look guys, I'm the one that walked on water. I, I'm the best disciple. They would look at Bartholomew and says, people will Google your name because they don't know how to spell your name. <laughs> right? I mean, poor Bartholomew. So sad, right? I had to Google his name to spell his name, by the way. Like, is he one of the 12? He's always the forgotten man. But like, can you imagine the 12 disciples and 
Christ reveals his love to them and he challenges them to reveal the love of Christ to everyone through their love for one another. Third point, Jesus says love is committed. In John 13, 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, Jesus Jesus knew that the disciples were going to abandon him, were going to leave him, were going to deny him the moment he took the cross. He even prophesied it for Peter. But the love of Jesus was committed to the end. I mean, we can talk about the failures of Peter in this passage, but we must understand this. Jesus did not cast them off because of their failure, but he loved them to the end and he showed that love by restoring them and using them even after his resurrection. And that is the commitment of his love. Jesus' love is committed to our highest good. And the highest good for all mankind is that we become more like Christ by growing in holiness and living to glorify him. And this commitment is the same commitment to one another where for Mel, I am committed to ensure that she becomes the best version of herself. And it's the same commitment that we need to hold for one another that we see the best versions of ourselves to love one another and be committed to each other despite failings. And can we do that? Can we look at people and say, I know your weakness, I know your idiosyncrasies, I know your quirks, but I'm willing and I'm committed to love you, to see the best version of yourself. And I'm part of that. Jesus' love is committed. So, what does it mean for you and I? You know, there's a kingdom principle that I've learned over the years. And the principle is this. I will not be able to give something I do not have. You can talk about it with time. You can talk about it with skills. You can talk about it with gifts. You can also talk about it with love. We will not be able to give whatever we don't have. If today I ask Andre, Andre, can you give me $200? Now, will you be able to give me $200? Unless I give you $200 to give me, right? Yeah, but I wouldn't do that because I don't have $200. But the idea is this. We will not be able to give anything that we do not have. First John three sixteen and 17 says this. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. We are able to do it because he has done it. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Wow. That's an intense verse. And so I realized that over the years and just me trying to live out what it means to have a a life that loves people, I have questions that I always ask myself in situations that helps me to love people. And I'm just going to ask these questions to you. And I hope it will help you stimulate some thought about what it means to love one another. Cool? Okay. Question number one. Is our love convenient or costly? Is our love convenient or costly? Galatians 6.2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Are we able to carry one another's burdens? Is helping uh, one another based out of convenience? Are we willing to go the extra mile for people? If people ask you for a favor, are we willing to go the extra mile? 
I remember when my father passed away when I was 18, and that was what, how many years ago? That's 17 years ago. Um, and my youth leader at that point of time says, hey, John, let me know if I can do anything for you. Anything. And I was just sharing about how lonely I'll be in the middle of the night. You know, I'm the one that is going to spend the night, doing the night watch. And he says, okay, I'll be there. And my youth leader at that point of time was in university. He was going through his final year exams. And he decided to spend time three days, three nights, or three nights rather. He would spend time with me in a week. And I know that that is what exemplifies love. That he was willing to go the extra mile for me. Sometimes we ask for favors and then the, our first copy will be like, oh, yeah, I don't want to, wow, so troublesome. I don't want to do this, you know. But are we willing to go the extra mile for one another? If you look across this room, are we willing to go the extra mile for one another? Is our love convenient or costly? Second question I ask myself, is our love all talk but no action? It's our love, all talk, but no action. First John 3.18, it says, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Two weeks ago, I think, or a week ago, um, someone from our church, his name is Shen, got into a car accident on Monday, on Monday this week. And he texted. It says, Oh, I got into an accident. Please uh, keep me in prayer. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll keep you in prayer. But I added in this statement, I said, if you need anything, let me know and I'll come and help you. But in my mind, I'm thinking, please don't call me. <laughs> don't call me. Like, I've, I've got work, I've got this. I, I, I do not want to come and help you at all. Like, it's too troublesome. And I, it, when I was preparing this, something occurred to me, it's our love all talk but no action. If he really said, hey, John, can you come and pick me up from Tuas? I'm like, oh, dear. <laughs> Let me reconsider. I know a friend called Andre who will love to pick you up. <laughs> you know, but it's our love, all talk, but no action. There's this passage in the Bible in Acts chapter 3, and the Bible talks about how Peter and John were walking to the temple to pray. And the Bible says that there was a lame man who was standing at a gate beautiful, and he Sitting, yeah, standing, sitting, a layman standing, sorry. <laughs> layman sitting <laughs> on gate beautiful. And Peter and John looks at him and says, right, silver and gold I have not, but what we have we give to you. But there's a verse that happens before this statement that the Bible says Peter and John stopped, looked at the man and walked toward the man. He stopped, they looked and they walked toward the man in Acts chapter 3. How many times in our life we come into church and we breeze through everybody and we sit in our seat that we always sit every Sunday and we don't ask people, hey, how's your week been? Or you don't look too good, like, can I pray for you? Like, how often do we breeze through people and not talk to them or not bother about their life, not ask questions that are important and we just assume that everybody's okay? But can we say that we stop, we look and we take action with people that we meet? Hebrews 10.24, it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on, on towards love and good deeds. First Thessalonians, says, Encourage one another and build each other. Are we able to do that in action and talk to people, encourage people to say, Hey, can I pray for you? Can I do something? Can I help you out in the situation that you're going through? Can I spur you on? How can we grow together 
Do we make an active decision to show love as a verb to one another, to call out the good in each other, to talk about speaking the truth in love? It's such a difficult question or a difficult statement to speak the truth in love to one another. And let's say we see a brother or a sister who is struggling or is, who's doing something that we know we can speak life to. Do we just stand aside and not do anything about it? Do we turn to someone else and say, hey, look at that brother, Yo, you know, his behavior is like this, like this. You know, and we gossip behind, the, you know, be, behind that person. But can we say that we become a community that can speak truth to one another in love? Can we remind one another about the promises of God over their lives? What about attendance in our church or attendance in our life? What about punctuality? It's great encouragement that everyone's attentive listening to me preach. But it's an action that all of us need to be actively doing. You're, you will encourage your life group if you are present for life group. You, and, and it's an action, it's a commitment. It's going to be an inconvenience for you sometimes to, to, to sacrifice a Friday or to set aside a Friday to go for life groups. But it will encourage a community of people when you're present and you're there. Right? But can we be a church that these, do these things? Can we share our testimonies that happened over the week? Um, can we share about what we've learned in the Bible and fellowship and build life together actively while it takes action? Can we do it? Third question. Is our love conditional or do we love freely? 1 Peter 4, 8, 9 says, Above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now Jesus loved unconditionally. You talk about the people that could not pay him back anything. The prostitutes, the beggars, the sinners, the tax collectors. I mean, there are people who were destitutes of society, the lepers. These people could not pay back Jesus anything, but Jesus loved them unconditionally. All of us are positioned somewhere in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities. Are we able to love people that God has placed on our lives and love them to the fullest and our best ability knowing that perhaps they may not do anything in return for you and for your love? But are we able to exemplify and glorify Christ even in the little actions that we do daily with the people that we meet? Last question. Is our love God-inspired or driven by the fear of men? Is our love God-inspired or driven by the fear of men? Now, this is an issue that I've been struggling with for many years. Now, I always like people to like me, you know, who doesn't, right? Um, and I have this tendency to just be nice to people so that they would like me. And growing up, was, I, I realized it was, this, it was developed out of the fear of men. Right? I just want people to like me, so I'll just be extra nice to you. Oh, you want money here? I'll take money. You don't need to pay me back. You know? Or I'll go an extra mile for you, but you have to like me back. You know? you know? it's, it's conditional because I pick my niceness and my love to people out of the fact that I have a fear of men and I want them to like me. But the question is, is our love God-inspired? First Thessalonians 3.12, it says this, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. What does the Bible say? He is the one that makes our love increase and abound. Romans 5.5, 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's this love that God inspires and God gives to each and every one of us. This is the same love that we need to receive and posture ourselves to receive from the love of God. 
John 17, 20, 24. Now this is a powerful verse. I'm just going to read this. John 17, 20, 24. And Jesus, this is a verse of where Jesus is praying to the Father. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This is the third time Jesus says this in this scripture, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, this is what Jesus is saying in this passage. He says, when you come to know God personally and know the love of the Father and the Son, you are drawn into the fellowship of the Trinity and we get to see and experience what it means for God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit being involved in the fellowship of the Trinity with a perfect love. And He tells us that you and I can also be part of that love and love the same way. Think about it. Uh, the same love that the Father loves the Son, that loves the Holy Spirit, the same love that ties the Trinity together, the Bible says that you and I can love exactly the same way. It takes God to love one another. It takes God to love God. This is staggering, but this, that Jesus prays, He asks that the love of which, with which the Father has loved the Son might be in us. In other words, to know God is to love the Son of God with the very love of His Father. You cannot claim to know God or be born of God if you have not been ravished by the love of God and the evidence is seen through how we are one and how we love one another. This is what the Scripture says. The fruit of the love of God is shown and it's, the evidence is in our love for one another. What matters is a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God. You know what, why this is so powerful? We realize and we understand that love that God has called us for is impossible by men. Impossible. To love even to the point of death. Impossible. But what is staggering is when we begin to tell people that there is a love greater than this, and it's the love of God. And it can only be explained by the supernatural work of God. And this is the love that assures us that we are born of God and that the love will cause some in the world to see and give glory to our Father in heaven. And this is the love I desire for my own life. But this is also the love that I desire of this church. There is nothing more thrilling than experiencing the love of God so deeply that it spills into all our relationships. Can you imagine if this community is a community that loves the way Jesus loves? I'm not just talking about church growth. I'm not talking about greater impact in society. But this is going to transform an entire nation, an entire city. When believers come together and understand that we can love the same way Christ loves, that we can lay down our convenience, we can lay down our life, we can lay down our own needs for the sake of the people around us. And that is the love that God has called us for. Can we say that this is the hallmark of the city church? I'm going to share a story of this missionary and I'll close really soon. How many of you have heard the story of Elizabeth and Jim Elliot? 
One, two. Let me read their story. There were missionaries to this place in Ecuador. So Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Roger Yoderian were American missionaries working in Ecuador. They had learned of a savage tribe of Indians that killed several Shell Oil Company employees. Violence was a way of life for the Orcas. Six of every ten adult deaths were homicides by spearing. Fearless, the missionaries initiated contact through an ingenious method of lowering a bucket of gifts from a small airplane. As Nate Saint flew the bright yellow single-engine Piper PA-14 overhead, banking in a tight circle, a bucket was lowered on a long rope. It would remain motionless just long enough for several curious orcas to help themselves to what was inside. And this continued for several months. Thinking that they had gained their trust, the missionaries landed the plane on a sandbar in the Kurere River. Over the ensuing days, they made several friendly face-to-face encounters and even gave one of the orcas, his name is Nayan Kiwi, Kiwi, a ride in the plane. But on January 8, 1956, all five of the missionaries were attacked and brutally murdered. The world recoiled in horror. The images of the mutilated bodies recovered from the Kurere River appeared in newspapers across the country. Life magazine ran a 10-story page on the incident. It seemed to be nothing more than a tragic loss. But God would soon roll back the dark clouds of despair, allowing the world a providential glimpse into his often mysterious ways. And God was about to make the wrath of man praise him. Two years later, in what could be considered one of the greatest acts of forgiveness in the 20th century, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, and Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, went to live with the tribe now known as the Waodani. The woman studied the tribe's language and learned their culture. Their demonstration of forgiveness to the man who murdered their loved ones so moved them, they were given the opportunity to share the greatest story of forgiveness, Christ's death on the cross. Many members of the tribe were converted to Christianity and the murder rate among the tribe dropped to 90%. And just because there was a missionary wife by the name of Elizabeth Elliot who decided that I will love this tribe, the same people that murdered my husband, I was going to love them. The same people that took away everything that my life was centered around, I'm going to love them and I'm going to forgive them. And she reached out to this tribe and ministered to them, and almost ninety or almost the entire tribe was saved through that one act of love and forgiveness. The Bible says, "By this, all men will know that you are my disciples." You see, loving one another is the key for people to encounter God, and we hold that key. Loving one another is the key for people to encounter God. And it's unfortunate sometimes we take the key and we throw it away just because we do not want to be inconvenienced to love one another or perhaps because we don't want to be committed to love one another or perhaps we just don't want to show our love to one another and to have this conspicuous love or perhaps because our love is conditional and we are not able to love freely, we take the key and we throw it away. But today, this morning, my encouragement to all of us, and while this is a message that I understand and realize is impossible out of our own ability, but Christ has given us through the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to love one another the same way Christ loves the church. 
even to the point of death. So the question is, as a community and as a church, can we love one another? Is it something that we are committed to do? Is this something that we are encouraged to do, to love one another? Are we able to look at each other and say, hey, what is your need that I can meet? Do we talk to people that we have not seen in the room before and are willing to hear their stories? It's quite funny, you know, yesterday during the cell uh, leaders meeting, some of them were sharing about certain cell members that other people that may not know existed in church before. But have we taken time to just talk to people in church and say, hey, what is your story? What are you going through? How can that we're willing to look at one another and say, hey, how can we pray for you? And I think that church is going to be an awesome church. We must understand this. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming back for His church by looking for one bride, the spotless bride, without blemish. And can we say that the city church is going to be that church that is united the same way that Jesus calls us for? I'm just going to invite the band to come up and we're just going to pray. But you know what? When I, when I look at each and every one of us, I'm so encouraged because I know that this is something that's possible through Christ. Amen? And I don't think we are supremely far away from loving one another. We have a great group of people in this, seated in this room, I've already been so impacted by the love that so many of you have shown uh, one another and I can see it. But the challenge is, can we take that higher? Can we take that even greater with the standard that Jesus sets for us? That we can love one another even to the point of giving our lives for one another. I'll share one more quote and we will see how we'll end this. This is a quote by a Saint John Chrysostom and he says this, Only a fool would attempt to change the world with a simple message of love and peace. So we can conclude that Jesus was a fool. Only fools would agree to follow such a man. Only a fool would attempt to change the world with love and peace. But this is what Jesus did. He changed the world with a group of people that says they're going to love one another no matter what. I'm just going to repeat the four questions again. I just want us to think about those four questions that I asked. I just want us to think about what that means for us individually. question, is our love convenient or costly? Is our love all talk but no action? Is our love conditional or do we love freely? Is our love God-inspired or driven by the fear of men? May we be a church that loves one another. Amen?
Can we just invite all of us to stand up on our feet as we close this?